This is ContactTalkRadio.com. Consciousness in action. And you are taking action into your consciousness by tuning into Contact Talk Radio. And on TuneIn.com, Hing.fm, and Upsnap Mobile. Contact Talk Radio. Welcome to Carpe Diem with your host, Lisa McDonald. My mama told me when I was young, we're all on superstars. She pulled my hair with my lipstick on, in a glass of purple dry. Good morning, everybody. Thank you so very much for joining me, rejoining me here on this fantastic Canada Day weekend. Really grateful for this particular guest. Uh, couldn't think of a more appropriate, more suited guest to be sharing this hour with on radio. Uh, I've got Dr. David Suzuki here. And what I'm going to do, just because of the expansiveness of the program, it's uh, 145 countries, 220 TV, radio, terrestrial, satellite, and the potential for millions of iTunes downloads. I'm just going to, although it's not necessary in this case, given the stature of my guests, I'm going to get, provide a little bit of background information on Dr. David Suzuki before turning it over to unscripted dialogue. So who's David Suzuki? Well, David Suzuki is the co-founder of the David Suzuki Foundation, an award-winning scientist, environmentalist, and broadcaster, renowned for his radio and television programs that explain the complexities of the natural sciences in a compelling, easily understood way. Dr. Suzuki is a geneticist and in 1972 was awarded the EWR Stesi Memorial Fellowship for the Outstanding Research Scientist in Canada under the age of 35 and held it for three years. He's won, he has won numerous academic awards and holds 25 honorary degrees in Canada, the U.S. and Australia. He was elected to the Royal Society of Canada and is a companion of the Order of Canada. Dr. Suzuki has written 52 books, including 19 for children. His 1976 textbook, An Introduction to Genetic Analysis, remains the most widely used genetics textbook in the U.S. and has been translated into Italian, Spanish, Greek, Indonesian, Arabic, French, and German. Dr. Suzuki has received consistently high acclaim for his 30 years of award-winning work in broadcasting. In 1974, he developed and hosted the long-running popular science program Quirks and Quarks on CBC Radio for four years. He has since presented two influential documentary CBC Radio series on the environment. It's a matter of survival and from naked ape to super species. His national TV career began with CBC in 1971 when he wrote and hosted Suzuki on Science. He was host of Science Magazine, then created and hosted a number of television specials, and in 1979 became the host of the award-winning series The Nature of Things with David Suzuki. He has won four Gemini Awards as best host of different Canadian television series. His eight-part television series, A Planet for the Taking, won an award from the United Nations. His eight-part BBC PBS series, the Secret of Life was praised internationally, as was his five-part series, The Brain, for the Discovery Channel. On June 10, 2002, he received the John Draney Award for Broadcasting Excellence. Dr. Suzuki is also recognized as a world leader in sustainable ecology. He is the recipient of UNESCO's Kalinga Prize for Science, the United Nations Environment Program Medal, UNEP's Global 500, and in 2009 won the Right Livelihood Award that is considered the alternative Nobel Prize. Wow, Dr. Suzuki, I don't even know what to say to all that. Congratulations. Let's let's forget (laughs) it. You left out the most important thing of all. I'm a grandfather. Yes, we're going to get to that. To me, that has been the greatest uh, uh, privilege and uh, and obligation of my life. I mean, uh, at my age, I, I say that I'm... In the death zone, you know, at my age, uh, we see people dying all around us, and we've got to consider the reality of our mortality. And everything I do is is uh, to work towards leaving a better world for my grandchildren. Well, you've definitely done that. And I want to say personally on behalf of everybody who appreciates your efforts, your contributions, your leadership, thank you so much for what you're doing for our planet and what you're doing for education and uh and obviously you're a stellar grandfather. I mean, what an what an honor to have you here, especially on Canada well, Day. I couldn't be more proud. Thank you for having me. Uh 
you know, I'm just one person, and the the power of uh, the movement I'm involved in is is not to to protect the planet. The planet will do fine. The planet did fine before humans arrived, and will be here doing fine long after we're gone. But we are undermining by our relentless drive for more and more and more. We're undermining the very things that keep us alive. And uh, uh, this is uh, this is what we're all working for. We we came into a world which you know I, I'm not a Christian, but uh, the Bible talks about Adam and Eve coming into the garden, and uh, it was a garden. It was it was a wonderful place, but. Humans have become so powerful that, and we've forgotten that we live in the garden, the biosphere that supports us, and uh, I, I, we we desperately need a, a change. And you know, here on Canada Day, we are celebrating the overturn of nine and a half years of uh, the Harper government, a government that denied the reality of climate change and. Uh, ruled that enemies were, were uh, environmentalists were enemies of Canada. We now, uh, but we've elected a very different uh, uh, government, and we look to the United States now and uh, are very, very concerned. Uh, you know, the, if you look at every single candidate for the Republican uh, Party nomination, every single one is a climate denier. Mm-hmm. What kind of a state have we come to when scientists are telling us the reality we've known for over three decades the reality that human activity is changing the chemistry of the atmosphere and that it's affecting the climate and weather and we know that the fossil fuel industry like exxon has known about this for over two decades their own scientists told us that told them that uh, climate change was real and fossil fuels were at the heart of it and um, what's frightening is that rather than acting on this, uh, the, the fossil fuel industry has chosen to obfuscate and accuse the climatologists of lying and, and being self-interested, and uh, we've had no action. Mm-hmm. So that, uh, you know, on this day, as we look forward to uh, this next year, will be the 150th anniversary of Canada we look at where we are in North America and part of the world, and it's a very, very worrying time for our grandchildren. Absolutely. Absolutely. And what I'd like to ask you, Dr. Suzuki, uh, you know, might seem like a bit of a, a no-brainer question to you, but of course this, like I said, expands to uh, all global, all four planets of the world, so corners of the world. So what I'd like to know from you is why do you think – People continually, whether it be within government, outside of government, on an individual basis, what do you think precipitates and perpetuates the ignorance, the fact that people choose to still deny that global warming is very much a part of our world and our reality? What do you attribute well, that it, to? I think it's very definitely a corporate agenda. That Corporations are not driven by a mandate to improve uh, the life of, of uh, human beings on the planet. They're not driven... Uh, by a mandate to uh, include the environment, the air, the water, and the soil as part of their responsibility in the way they act. Corporations are driven by the need to grow and make money. And the corporate agenda is now the dominant agenda. Governments around the world have come to accept the idea that what's good for corporations will ultimately benefit uh, human beings, and that's simply not the case. I can give you a, a very striking example of the dilemma. A few, you know, in Canada, we're having a big battle over the, the dirtiest source of uh, energy uh, in the world, and that's the tar sands of Alberta. And we've been battling over the uh, use of or extraction of oil from the tar sands for many, many years. And three years ago, I got a call from Alberta from the CEO of one of the largest oil companies in the tar sands. And he said, I, I, I'm calling because I would love to, to have a talk with you. I said, great. I'm not into fighting. I don't see the point of fighting because we can't afford winners and losers. I want to talk to you, and it would be an honor for you to uh, talk, come and talk to me. The next day he showed up at my office door, and I thanked him profusely and said how, how, uh, what an honor it was 
for him to be there. But I said to him, before you come through this door, I would like you to do me one big favor. I'd like you to leave, leave your identity as the CEO of an oil company outside the door. I want to meet you as a human being to human being. Because before we start to talk about energy and climate change, I want to talk to you to, to see what we agree on. What's the point of fighting and all of this stuff if we don't all start from a platform of total agreement? Absolutely. Well, he was very, very nervous. He did not want to, to come through. But to his credit, to his credit, he said, okay, and came in. And I told him, look, I understand that this is a very awkward thing for you because you've come down with a very definite agenda. But I said, what do you think is the most important thing for every human being on the planet? And I could see his brain was going, well, money, a job, uh, a, a company. And I said, if you don't have air for three to four minutes, you're dead. Mm-hmm. We walk such a narrow line. No air for four minutes, we're dead. If we have to breathe contaminated air, we're sick. So could you not, as a human being, agree with me that around the world, our highest priority must be protecting clean air? It gives us life and health and happiness. And then I said, you and I, we're each 60 to 70% water by weight. We're just a big blob of water with enough thickener added so we don't dribble away on the floor. And But the body, we leak water. It comes out of our eyes and our mouth and our urine and feces. We have to drink water. If you don't have water for four to six days, you're dead. If you have to drink polluted water, you're sick. So surely all human beings would agree clean water has got to be up there with clean air as our highest priority. And then I said... We uh, we can live a lot longer without food, but in four to six weeks without food, and most of it is grown in the soil, in four to six weeks we'd be dead without food, and if we have to eat contaminated food, we're sick. So can we put food, clean food and soil with clean air and water? And finally, I said, Mr. CEO, every bit of the energy in your body that you need to move and grow and reproduce. All of that energy is sunlight. Sunlight captured by plants in photosynthesis, converted into chemical energy, then we get it by eating the plants or the animals that eat the plants, and we capture that chemical energy and store it in our bodies. And when we need that energy to move or do any kind of work, we burn those molecules and release the energy of the sun back out into our bodies. So I said... Mr. CEO, would you not agree with me that clean air, clean water, clean food and soil, and clean energy from the sun, those have got to be the foundation of the way we live. And I said, if you can shake hands with me and agree, I will do everything I can. My foundation will do everything it can to help you make a living in the future. Brilliant. And so did he ask, did he ask to be excused to go to the bathroom and throw up? <laughs> well, he was a very, very unhappy man. And he refused, in the end, to shake hands on it. And really? he left. He, he couldn't. The reality is I put him in a, in a very untenable position. He had come down to talk to me not as a human being to human being. He had come down to talk to me as a CEO of an oil company. If he were to go back to his shareholders and say, well, I had a discussion with Suzuki, and I have to agree, whatever we do, we must not in any way compromise clean air, clean water, clean soil, and and photosynthesis, he'd be fired in a flash. That's not his job. Mm -hmm. And so this, I believe, is the crisis. All of this talk from the left left side to the right side of the political spectrum about the need to keep the economy growing and we've got to do this above anything else. Our prime minister for nine and a half years said, we can't do anything about climate change. It'll destroy the economy. So he elevated the very economy above the atmosphere that keeps us alive. This is crazy. But that CEO operates in a different world in which his job is to make money. 
His job is not to leave a better world for coming generations. And this is the crisis we face. Look at the, 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 the track record of Monsanto, of, of pharmaceutical companies, of, of uh, the chemical industry, the fossil fuel industry. When do they ever say, my gosh, we've got a problem here, and we're part of it. Let's all work together and solve this. No, it's all denial. Those damn environmentalists are raising trouble. They're against everything. They're against companies. They're against the economy. No, we're for a bright future where our children can breathe clean air and drink clean water and, and, uh, and, and live a, a healthy, happy life. That's what we're for. But you don't see the corporations taking up the challenge and saying, we're part of the problem, now we've got to get out of this. Absolutely. Well, let me ask you this then, Dr. Suzuki. These people that you're interfacing with who are on the opposite side of the spectrum here, these are people who, of course, have children. These are people who have grandchildren. These are people who have far more personally invested in getting behind the cause and, uh, you know, just getting getting real on the, the subjects and the issues. So how do these people reconcile this to still maintain the hat the, the, the job agenda, all these things where they have to turn a blind eye. This <laughs> is, you've really put your finger right on the critical issue. They, why is it that I meet the CEOs and presidents of companies and they say, look, I've got grandchildren, I love, my gran I love going camping and, and canoeing, and I'm a good Christian, I go to church every Sunday, and you, you ask yourself, what, what kind of a world are we living in that – and the problem is that we live in a world in which we no longer see the connection to the natural world. I had a, a huge argument with the CEO of a forest company that was going to log in a valley the First Nations consider sacred. And we had a huge argument, and finally he, he shouted in frustration, Listen, Suzuki, are tree huggers like you willing to pay for those trees? Because if you're not willing to pay for them, they don't have any value until someone cuts them down. Wow. And that, that reveals the problem, you see. If we continue to act as if the economy is the most important thing, then all of the things that that forest is doing, as long as it's – that forest is taking carbon dioxide out of the air and putting oxygen back in it. Not a bad service for an animal like us. Without that service, we wouldn't be here. And yet economists – Ignore that as a factor in the economy. The forest is holding the soil, so when it rains, the soil doesn't run into the rivers and spoil the spawning grounds of the salmon. The forest is pumping millions of gallons of water out of the soil into the atmosphere and affecting weather and climate. The forest provides habitat for, for plants and other animals. And, and all of those things a, a vibrant forest does that makes the planet habitable for us is not a part of the economic equation. The economy is a human construct. We invented it, and yet we constantly ask nature to fit our economic demands. We say, oh, well, we've got to breed fish that will grow faster and bigger. We've got to breed trees that will, will grow and we can harvest in 30 years instead of 80. We, we constantly ask nature to fit our economic agenda. And yet that economic system is so fundamentally flawed that it's at the heart, it's at the very heart of our uh, ecological crisis. We forget that the word economy comes from the Greek word ekos, which is the same word uh, that is part of ecology. So ecology is the study of our home the biosphere, and economics is a management. We manage our lives within the bios biosphere. Now, it's crazy to me that we invent something called the economy and we elevate it above the very ecological principles of sustainable living. We act as if the economy is the most important thing in society. It's crazy, but that's at the heart of it. Now, when you are a company uh, executive or, uh, you know, a CEO, that's the world you operate within, in a world that is completely dictated by economic demands. And that system 
does not pay attention to air, water, soil, or, or biodiversity as an important part of the way that we live. Absolutely. Well, let me ask you this then, David. You know, based on you being one of the more pivotal people who has a true, complete pulse on these subject matters, uh, somebody who's dedicated their life to this and can back it up with the science and, you know, the numbers and the stats and everything, what do you forecast based on the lack of receptivity? Uh, call it ignorance, call it chosen selective ignorance. For people who will never get behind this, for people who are fueled by their own agendas and will continue to do so and be so, what do you forecast as the future? What, what, what do you see for the generations of our children? Uh, well, we know in very broad outline what the consequences of uh, climate change will be, but we have multiple crises. Climate is just the most obvious uh, issue that we confront, and there is absolutely no question that we're going to encounter more and more extreme and unexpected events. So that, you know, hurricanes of this size or, or uh, deluge of rain of, of this magnitude that happened once every 100 years is starting to occur once every 10 years and maybe every year. I mean, you see it all over the place. Don't we connect the dots between the forest fires that are going on all across the continent? Uh, don't we see the incredible drought in California, you've got a major candidate from the Republican Party that is claiming that the drought in California is a hoax, that it's not real. What the heck is it going to take, for heaven's sakes? The signs are all around us. Katrina, I thought, was a wake-up time. It came, it was a crisis, it passed. I thought Hurricane Sandy was a crisis. It came and passed, and it wasn't a, 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 a changing force. Uh, when we had... 6,000 people in Paris dying of heat one summer. I thought that might be the trigger. Well, if you go to Europe, uh, the climate change is a very real issue, and uh, many of the countries are acting seriously uh, on it. I think the, uh, we've got a president in the United States, unfortunately a lame duck president, who has taken climate change very seriously, but been tremendously hamstrung by the corporate sector and by the right-wing uh, parties. We've got a very progressive prime minister in Canada who went to Paris in December and said, yes, we must do everything we can to keep temperature from rising two degrees above pre-industrial times, uh, preferably one and a half degrees. We should uh, uh, keep that as a limit. And uh, those things, the question is, we, we use the words, but we... We, uh, we show no signs of real commitment, and um, it's just a matter of acting on that commitment. If we don't, I think, you know, sea levels are going to rise because water, when it gets warmer, expands. And so just from the warming of the oceans, sea levels are going to rise. But when the ice sheets of Antarctica and Greenland begin to slide into the oceans, you're going to see massive increases in, uh, in the uh, uh, depth of the oceans and, and huge amounts of uh, flooding, loss of biodiversity. Uh, anyway, I could go through a, a list of possible things. But let me, let me tell you a story. I was privileged to go to uh, an American college as an undergraduate called Amherst College in Massachusetts. And in my senior year at Amherst, the beginning of 1957, on an October 4th, 1957, do you know what happened that day? Uh, I wish I could recall. Unfortunately, I don't. You Sorry. probably weren't even born then, but I can tell you that the Soviet Union launched Sputnik. Mm -hmm. And nobody knew there was a space program going, and we were shocked by that. And then in the ensuing months, the United States tried to launch each of its uh, armed services rockets, you know, the Army, Navy, and Air Force, all had their own rockets, and every one blew up. Meanwhile, the Russians launched the first animal in space, a dog, Laika, the first man in space, Yuri Gagarin, the first team of cosmonauts, the first spacewalk, the first woman, Valentina Tereshkova. What did Americans do? No one said, oh, my God, they're so far ahead. It'll cost way too much for us to try to catch up. America began a massive program to say we've got to catch up 
and beat these guys. Here I was, a Canadian, living in the United States, but all you had to do was say, I like science, and they you threw money at you. It was a wonderful time to be a science uh, a student or a scientist, and science departments exploded, and in 1961, President Kennedy announced a, a plan to get American astronauts to the moon and back within a decade. They had no idea how they were going to do it, but they just made the commitment to get there. And look at what happened. Not only did you beat that target, but not only is America the only country to put humans on the moon, but all of the unexpected things that came out of that commitment to get to the moon. The, every year, NASA publishes a magazine called Spinoff. The thing I wanted to say is uh, that, you know, because the United States made a commitment in 1958, after Sputnik was launched in 57, the United States made a commitment to catch up to the Russians. And in 1961, Kennedy announced a plan to get to the moon first. Because of that commitment, every year when Nobel Prizes in Science are announced, it's still Americans or American-based scientists that take the preponderance of these awards. So this is because the United States said, we're going to make a commitment, and, and we've got to, to uh, get there first. We don't know how to do it, but we're going to put everything we can into it. We've now made a commitment including the United States, was at Paris in December. We've made a commitment to do all we can to stop temperature from rising above two degrees in, uh, since the Industrial Revolution. That's a target. It's un-American to say, oh, we can't do it. It'll destroy the economy. That's not the America I knew when I was going to school in the United States. The American way is to say, this is a big challenge, and we've got no choice. We've got to win this one. So I urge Americans to look back on what it is to be an American when you're faced with challenges of this kind. America steps up to the plate and throws everything into it in the full knowledge that once you make that commitment, all kinds of unexpected uh, benefits will fall out of it. Just make the commitment and then get on with it. Unfortunately, the whole discourse with the public is is uh, uh, muddied by all of the corporate uh, lying, the corporate accusations of uh, scientists, scientists having other agendas. It's muddied by not facing up to the reality of the challenge that exists, but then that there are an immense number of opportunities. You know, one small area, we're going to have to go off fossil fuel-driven uh, vehicles, Batteries become a fantastic area where I look to American know-how to really take us into a new era of batteries to store the energy that is being generated by, by sunlight and, and by wind. So uh, rather than seeing this as uh, something that's not real and that we can't afford it, we've got to do the American thing, which is to take the challenge and say, wow, there's real opportunity here. This is our moment. All kinds of, and in fact, right now, look at the energy input uh, and the growth sector in the United States in energy. It's not oil and gas. It's in renewable energy. It's exploding. But because this is such a tiny sector right now, we're still overwhelmed by coal, oil, and gas. The reality, though, is coal is on its way out. Just look at the, at, the, at the worth right now of a company like Peabody, the largest coal uh, company in the United States. Look at, look at the, what the, the market is telling you about the value of coal right now. It's plummeting, and we've got to seize on that and, and say, well, what can we do to replace that? In the tar sands of Alberta, there are a group of, uh, there's a group of workers in the tar sands who formed a, a group called Iron and Earth. And they're saying, look, we know we can't go on exploiting this very dirty form of energy, but we've got skills that we've developed in the tar sands, skills in, as pipe fitters, as, as electricians, as, uh, as carpenters, as, as truck drivers. And so Iron and Earth is saying, help us, support us in trans transferring our abilities into the growth sector of the future, which is renewable energy. And so they're proposing 
that governments begin a program in which those workers in the tar sands are given support that are they're subsidized to go in and install solar panels on every school in the country. So they'll acquire the capacity to apply skills learned in the tar sands into the new area of, uh, of solar and, and wind technology. So this is the, the kind of thinking that's needed. Rather than the knee-jerk corporate response, which is, don't tell me this is really true. Don't tell me we have to do anything. I want to keep making money, and I'm not going to do anything uh, about that except to, to attack our critics. Um, this is just not the way to, um, to, to deal with the, real, uh, with the real crisis that faces us. This is an opportunity. It's our moment to get things right. Absolutely. Well, I have a multitude of questions I wish to ask you, some of which I may not be able to uh, get to in this hour that's uh, approaching at the top of the hour, bottom of the hour here. But I do want to, two things simultaneously that just crossed my mind that I'd like to ask. So as far as you interfacing with people in the corporate world, uh, of course, we know what their agenda is. We know that they can't um, concede on this and still be able to maintain their position. Uh, have you had any experience where somebody has sat across from you, similar discussion to what you shared with us in the beginning of the show, um, and they have indicated to you off the record, I hear what you're saying, but I just can't jump on board? Okay. Of course. I've had uh, – the problem is that they're all captives of the system. The system is the economic system that dictates their actions, and that – so, you know, to give you an example, we've got uh, two, actually, they're Americans from Detroit who moved up to Canada during the Vietnam War. This is Michael Budman and Don Green, who've just been awarded the Order of Canada this, this week, in fact. So they came up to Canada, and they started a very successful clothing company called Roots. And uh, they've exploded. They're a huge company. And they've come to a number of my lectures. And Michael said to me once, he said, Dave, I hear what you're saying. He said, I agree with what you're saying. We can't have an economy that grows forever because that's the creed of cancer cells, and cancer cells think they can grow forever, and they, they kill us. So, but he said, you know, if I were to go to the bank and say, look, Roots is doing very well. We've captured 5% of the garment market in Canada. My employees are very well paid, and we're making lots of money. But we need to upgrade our facilities, so can I take a bank? I don't want to grow my company. We're happy. We've got plenty of, of, uh, of uh, employees and, and uh, offices all across the country. We don't want to grow. We want to stay at 5%. He said, if I were to submit that to a bank, they wouldn't give me a loan because if you're not growing, you're considered dying. Right. Now, this is lunacy. This is sheer lunacy. Now, I, so let me just give you, this is going to take a bit of time, but it's very important. Yes, we, all, we all say we've got to keep the economy growing. We've got to keep the economy growing. And nobody asks, what's an economy for? How much is enough? Are there limits? Are we happier with all this stuff? No, no one asks that. We all blindly say we've got to keep growing. But wait a minute. Now. In Canada, we say if we don't grow, we're going to be an economic basket case. Wait a minute now. Go to Japan. For 20 years, the Japanese economy has been flat. And you go to Japan, you don't see a country where everybody is begging for food or money. Go to Japan. I'd say that there are lots of things that they could be cutting back on uh, on their electricity use. Japan's doing fine. What's all this stuff about we need to grow, grow, grow? That is a death knell of any organism that lives within a finite world. You can't grow forever. And, and this blind commitment to steady growth is, is keeping us from asking the important questions. How much is enough? How do we – isn't happiness the goal of, of society? Are we happier with all this stuff? What kind of a world are we leaving for our children? We've got to start asking those questions. Absolutely, we do. Now, I, there was one uh, corporate leader who was a role model, I believe, for, for the world. That's a man named Ray Anderson. Have you ever heard of him? No, I have Ray not. Anderson, 
had the largest carpet tile company in the world, and his employees said, Ray, do we have an environmental policy? And he said, what are you talking about? Of course not. And they said, well, our customers are asking us for our company's uh, uh, environmental uh, practices. And he began to read, and suddenly he said he read a book by Paul Hawken, who is a, a businessman who wrote The Ecology of Commerce. And he said partway through Paul's book, it was as if a spear was thrown through his chest. He realized, oh, my God, our company is destroying, is destroying the world we live in. Our tiles, our carpet tiles are made by, by uh, molecules that are thrown into the, our dumps that glues and the material we make our tiles from are poisonous and we throw them into the air, the water and the soil. And he began a journey, he said, to climb Mount Sustainability. And he always said, I were halfway there, partway there. But he d turned the company around to say, we've got to produce products that are not in any way toxic that can be reused over and over and over again, that the water that comes into his factory in Atlanta is cleaned, and when it goes back out into the water system, is cleaner than when it came in from the Atlanta uh, water system. Their energy they use in their factory is derived from tapping the methane in a dump nearby with wind and solar. I mean, he really has the... Now, unfortunately, Ray died far too soon uh, a few years ago. But Ray was a model for corporates, corporations around the world. He took the environment very, very seriously and incorporated it into his business plan. And his company, Interface Carpets, is, I think, still the, the biggest uh, uh, tile company uh, and carpet company in the world and very, very successful. Well, that's refreshing to hear. And, you know, it's, it's unfortunate when we talk about, uh, terms like leadership and what that's supposed to, uh, be indicative of. It's really sad when you talk about a population of people who are in positions of power and control. And it's not synonymous with authenticity, transparency, or integrity. And, uh, you know, so when we talk about the future generations of our children and our grandchildren, and we're looking at these people who are elected to these positions of power, who are just so turning a blind eye and uh, for their own agenda, for their own agenda, and they know full well what potentially stands to happen for future generations, which is inclusive of their own family members, and yet they just keep plodding through with what they support uh, yeah, that, yeah. that fuels them. So, you know, it's really disheartening when you talk about leadership and it becomes synonymous with this. And um, Well, I don't, I, you know, the people, I, I've met a lot of corporate executives. These are decent people. They are, are intelligent. Mm -hmm. They're hardworking, but they're in large part captive of the system that they work within. And that's a system that has been created by, uh, by economists. And the problem is the system within they, which they work is so fundamentally flawed. Now, uh, Americans, I'm sure, remember the 2008 economic meltdown that was uh, initiated by the big banks. And uh, I look to a, a country like Iceland. Iceland had four uh, national banks. And when the 2008 meltdown happened because the banks were perpetrating fraud and, and uh, with, with all of their, uh, these crazy things that they were doing with property, three of the four banks went down, went broke, because the government didn't, bought, didn't rescue them. They said, we're not going to – they've created the problem. Indeed, over 60 people were tried for, for fraud, and dozens of these executives went to jail. How many American executives went to jail for what happened in 2008? But, you know, the lesson here was one of the banks survived and has done very, very well. Do you know about this? And it was a bank that was created and staffed by women. Beautiful. A, woman, a woman's bank survived that very well. And I think that is a very, very uh, telling lesson. Men tend to be much 
more short-sighted. That is, we're driven by the corporate agenda, which is a quarterly report or the annual report. Politicians are driven by the need to do things for the next election. But women, because they have traditionally always been the caretakers in society, think much more long-term, think much more holistically about the implications of what they're doing because family is the driving force of their uh, of their priorities and i think it's very very significant that women were the driving force in in getting iceland uh, through its economic crisis well i appreciate you sharing that with us uh, dr suzuki and uh yeah very telling absolutely so what i'd like to also ask you too is um Lots of things, but we're, get, we're approaching the bottom of the hour here. So what I'd like to ask you is, do you have much contact with Al Gore? Of course. Well, not, not, not in the last few years, but Al uh, and I were on many programs together. He invited me to, to uh, lecture at uh, some of his training uh, programs, and I'm a, a big fan of Al's. And I think Al's, uh, the film An Inconvenient Truth, Yes. was a really, really important event, and I was astonished at the American corporate response, which was not to deny the things that were going on in his film, but to attack Al as having no credibility. You know, shoot the messenger, say, ah, oh, who believes this guy? I mean, he's got a big house in, in Knoxville or Nashville, and he doesn't pay attention to, to, to what he's saying. He's just nothing but a hypocrite. He's out to make money. And they, 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 they really, I, I, I'm amazed. Al is a, a person who is revered around the world except in the United States. And it's, it's tragic. I mean, of course, there are lots of people in the U.S. who, who look up to Al. But, mm-hmm. but the, uh, overwhelmingly, he has been attacked uh, within America rather than celebrated and thanked for what he's done. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, what I'd like to also ask you, Dr. Suzuki, is who have been your pivotal mentors in your life? Well, I, my father was, was the person that, that taught me a great deal of uh, uh, what, what motivates me now. But I would say, and of course, my mother was, was everything in my life uh, in a very different way. But I think that my parents were really important because for two reasons. My father, for some reason, loved the out-of-doors. Now, he was a son of immigrants. His mom and dad had come from Japan in about 1906. So uh, usually the children of immigrants, you know, they're told, you make money, go out and get a job and all that. That's the drive of immigrants. But dad loved camping and fishing, and uh, he loved uh, gathering plants on, on his ex, he loved the out of doors, and my grandparents were always giving him hell because he wasn't working all the time. Why did you go camping with David this weekend? You could have been working and making money. So I'm always grateful to my dad that he was never considered a success by his parents, but he he gave me a great love of of the out of doors. But mom and dad were married in 1934. This is right at the, you know, the, the Great Depression that was such a tough time uh, around the world. And because of the, the Great Depression, it really had a huge impact on them. And they drummed into our heads over and over again. They'd say, live within your means. Uh, share. Don't be greedy. Save some for tomorrow. Help your neighbors. You may one day need their help. You have to work hard to buy the necessities in life. But you don't run after money as if more money and stuff makes you a better or more important person. These were all things that they taught us, because, uh, you know, my sisters and me, because they knew that when there are times that are tough, these are the things that will help you get through life. And I can't imagine a more important time to learn and relearn those lessons. But in the orgy of growth and development in, after World War II, we've forgotten a great deal of the lessons that were taught to us by that last generation. And so I spend a lot of time urging elders. You know, I'm an elder. I'm 80 years old, and I, I tell my fellow elders, look, this is the most important time in your life. You've learned a lot in your lifetime, and now you don't have to worry about getting fired because you, you, you tell the truth. 
You don't have to worry about more fame or money or, or power. You can speak the truth from your heart. This is an important responsibility we have because we're the ones that can tell people without being accused of, of having an ulterior agenda. We do it for love of our children and grandchildren. We can speak the truth. Now, remember what we learned in those early times during World War II and, and during the Great Depression. Remember the lessons we learned then and, uh, and, and speak out without fear of someone being offended. If someone's offended by what I say, that's their problem, not mine. Yes. Because I don't have to worry about, about whether uh, people don't like what they hear from me. I speak the truth from my heart. Beautiful. And that's one of the reasons among many that I wanted to bring you on this show. I so love, respect, and appreciate and admire your courage and your message, how you impart these insights with the world, how you back it up, and how you hold true to what you believe in. And, uh, you know, it's people like you that I've been very blessed to bring on this program because this program is all about, as well as the network itself, including my host show, all about personal growth, personal development, authentic leadership, uh, and really just owning it, you know, owning it, speaking your truth regardless of what the background noise says or suggests or what they try to do to dispel or throw you off your game. So I just want to say your parents have clearly done a fantastic, phenomenal job with you. And uh, it's such a blessing to be born in a time where I know who a Dr. David Suzuki is. So, (laughs) so, yeah. I want to say thank you for that. And before we close, Dr. Suzuki, again, I, I unfortunately didn't get to get to all my, my questions. And maybe we bring you back on the show if that uh, if that's agreeable for you at a different time. But what is the legacy? I mean, we know what your accomplishments are. We know what you stand for. We know that your grandchildren and your family are the most important aspects of your life to you, uh, which is beautiful. Um but what is the legacy that you wish to leave behind? How do you wish to be remembered? Well, I, you know, a reporter once asked me that question. He said, what do you hope people say about you uh, after you're gone? And I stared at him in astonishment. I said, are you asking me what, will people, what do I want people to say after I'm dead? Quite frankly, I said, I won't give a shit what they say. I'll be dead. I don't care. I hope maybe they'll remember a few of the things that I've published or or done in radio and and television, but quite honestly, I don't care. I have done the best I can, and the greatest joy for me as I would be if I could lie in my deathbed surrounded by my family, not in pain, I hope, but uh, still fully uh, aware, and to be able to look at my grandchildren and say to them, I'm just one person, but I did the best I could for you. And if I could tell them that, that would make me die a very, very happy man. And uh, my legacy, after all, is my children and my grandchildren. And of that, I'm very, very proud. Now, I'm very proud of it. Uh, And that's that's what I leave. And then it'll be up to them to show uh, what contribution they make to the country and to the world. But uh, in terms of people remembering me, I don't care. Um, that's not what it's about. Absolutely. Well, it goes without saying, you've, you've, you've done a wonderful job in your time here on the planet, and I know that there's many more years left for you, and it will be a pain-free <laughs> passing. And, uh, and, of course, you know, just genetically and just for the environment, the nature, the nurture, for what you've done for your family, no doubt we haven't heard the last of the Suzuki name. So, um, yeah, I just want to say, too, you've, you've undoubtedly very clearly, uh, you've paid it forward for a plethora of people. But what I'd like to know is who would you deem to be the person in your life who has most pivotally paid it forward for you? Well, I I see my uh, children. I have five children, two wives, uh, separately. I didn't have two wives at the same time. I'm very. I I feel that uh, if you say paying it forward, they are my pay uh, forward, my uh, my contribution. I'm not sure I understand the, the the question completely. Um. Well, what I mean by that is just by your 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 legacy. I don't think one has to be passed over to have a legacy. I think you've walked your talk. 
Uh, you're very authentic. You know, you embrace your passions and you endeavor to do good every single day. So for what you do, either at the conscious level or the subconscious level of what you do to pay it forward, who in your life, in your journey, before you even became necessarily known as Dr. David Suzuki and all the acclaim and all the status and the accolades and the accomplishments, who in your journey has paid forward to you that's been instrumental in navigating you on your path? Well, uh, I, one of the, the most powerful uh, people in my life was a woman who I had never met, unfortunately, but I uh, had studied for eight years in the United States between 1954 and 1962. I got my Ph.D. in the United States, and I was ready to be a hotshot geneticist when I returned to Canada. And as I was embarking on my career, a woman named Rachel Carson published a book called Silent Spring, all about the unexpected effects of pesticides. Now, up until then, we thought pesticides, the world thought pesticides, wow, what a great invention. Paul Miller, who found that DDT kills insects, won a Nobel Prize for, the, for his discovery in 1948. So Ra Rachel Carson really changed the way I looked at the world. And I, I, I give her full credit for uh, changing me as a scientist to look at the world in a different way. Okay, well, Dr. David Suzuki, we've really got to go here, unfortunately. But again, I'd love to have you back at another time. I want to thank you so much for bringing in Canada Day with us. You've been listening to Carpe Diem with your host, Lisa McDonald. For more information, please go to Lisa's website at lisamcdonaldauthor.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>